Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. The final match of the final day of the Pacific Nations Cup in July 2022 saw Fiji facing off against Samoa at Lautoka, Fiji's sugar city. Before it started, the Pacific Nations Cup, or PNC, had been billed as the moment Tonga's newly eligible former All Black and Wallaby superstars Charles Piotau, Israel Falau, Malakai Fekitoa, would change the game for the Akale Tahi. But that wasn't to be the case, at least not this time round. All three had been injured early in the competition, and without them, Donga Sea Eagles went down 22-39 against Australia A in the first match of the day, their third loss in as many outings. In fairness, Tonga had always been focused on the qualifying game against Hong Kong a week later. They went on to win that one 44-22, ensuring their participation in the Rugby World Cup for 2023. For now, the spotlight turned to this game, whose outcome would decide Pacific supremacy. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I'm going to be honest with you here. I don't always follow the Pacific Nations Cup that closely. But after talking to the Samoan team, getting a feel for how disadvantaged they are by things happening behind the scenes, and knowing that what happens out on the pitch against Fiji, who now seem to be like world rugby's chosen ones in the Pacific, it feels like the stakes are really high. The scene, as they like to say, was set. This is Fair Game, Pacific Rugby against the world. It's a story about rugby. Wide to Lomu, he's got the bounce, he's handed off his opposite. But it's also a story about money and power. Oh, it's it's not a fair game now because certainly the island nations haven't uh, got enough money. Sometimes they have to choose between representing their their country or um, not being paid. History and race. I could never be told to piss off back to the islands, you coconut. Is it a fair game? All to play for here in Lautoka. Will it be Fiji? Will it be Manu Samoa? And down inside the 22. I'm John Daniel. And I'm James Norquise. Nice to have you back, John. Thanks, James. Nice to be back. This is our final episode. We're trying to pull together the story to understand all these forces that make it so hard for Pacific Island rugby to get where they should be. And we're going to follow that game for Pacific supremacy. But for now, let's meet a director of New Zealand rugby. We're in the business of making you laugh, making you cry, making you wait, suspense. You know, for me, sport is the most natural form of drama there is. This is Bailey Mackey, Nati Puro, Tuhoi, Rongo Frakata. 
the son of a sheep shearer, and now one of the most powerful people in the New Zealand game. There's a protagonist, which is your favourite team, so I, th- I assume you're a Canes fan, James. Absolutely, 100%. So you sit down and immediately whoever they're playing is the baddie. Uh, they're Darth Vader, right? I hadn't necessarily seen Manu Samoa as Luke Skywalker before talking to Bailey, but I'm going to go with it. The man has a deep feel for telling stories that connect with audiences. I'm also CEO of a, a production company which makes uh, a lot of sport content. You might have seen series like All or Nothing with the All Blacks on Amazon Prime or MatchFit on 3. For me, sport, and even if you think back to sort of, um, you know, Greek times, the Bible, sport stacks up is, for me, mm. probably the most pure form of drama. It contains all the right elements. He's not just a rugby fan with a flair for spinning a yarn. Bailey Mackey has deep roots in rugby. I'm 45 years old, been involved in the game for 40 years. Um, as a pretty average player, um, firstly. Uh, played first-class rugby for Ngāti Pro East Coast, um, which is the smallest of all our provinces. And then in recent years, I've been into administration. I was the president of the Ngāti Pro East Coast Rugby Union. And then um, latterly, uh, I'm the chair of the commercial committee for New Zealand Rugby. While there's a fair bit of moaning from various angles about how New Zealand rugby is run, its ability to cut commercial deals that deliver financial security to the union is genuinely impressive, especially when you take into account our small market because of our small population. So we wanted to know how does the money work and how might it work for the Pacific nations? The lion's share of revenue into the game are created by two sources, largely two sources. Mm. Uh, broadcasting and sponsorship and where there is a bigger market or bigger opportunity to commercialize uh, the rights that exist around the aforementioned Mm. um, products Mm. you can then drive the commercialization of the game I think when those unions can then participate in bigger competitions that are included in bigger markets Mm. then hopefully we'll um, you know see uh, revenue opportunities open to them Okay, so there's quite a bit to understand there. Firstly, I think it's interesting that Bailey didn't even mention gate-takings because relative to the size of potential broadcast and sponsorship, it's not as significant. Yeah, and in the long term, that's kind of good news for the Pacific where, as we mentioned earlier, they're just not getting any real money from ticket sales at home games. That doesn't have to be a big deal if they can get money from broadcasting and sponsorship from people watching the game anywhere in the world. And that's where regular competition comes in. So if you look at Moana Pacifica and the Fijian Drua, both of those teams actually had really strong sponsorship deals signed up across the board because they were taking part in Super Rugby Pacific, an internationally recognised competition that is broadcast around the world. Sponsors want people to see their association with a team and TV does that exponentially. Right, but you need to be playing in a competition that brings those eyeballs and I'm not sure the Pacific Nations Cup is really cutting it. While other countries are able to reap the rewards of traditional competitions that connect with big audiences. There is a lot of thought about effectively the castle that has been built in the north, right? Six Mm -hmm. nations, um, if you've watched recent, incredible competition, uh, Mm. full stadiums, um, the introduction of private equity via CVC um, into that ecosystem. So just on that private equity... CVC were the investment group who bought into rugby in the Northern Hemisphere. Whereas Silver Lake, who described themselves as, quote, the global leader in technology investing, 
end quote, have bought in here in New Zealand. Yeah, and again, it's one of those things where if you're focused on what happens on the field, it's easy to dismiss the money side of things, but it has a massive impact. Like the voting. Exactly. Now look, there are legitimate questions to be asked of private equity, but the bottom line is that with the kind of money these guys are bringing, you get financial stability so you can plan ahead. And you get help around the commercial side because if there's one thing those guys know how to do, it's make more money. But again, not great news for the Pacific. Because they're not interested in the Pacific? Well, actually, this is unconfirmed. I approached Silver Lake. They wouldn't comment. But two separate sources who've had dealings with them told me they are interested in Fiji. Ah, I see. So Fiji, but not Samoa and Tonga. Yeah, sorry, mate. Not at this point anyway. One of the things Bailey said there about full stadiums for the Six Nations, that's important. Not so much for the gate-takings, but for the sense of excitement a full stadium communicates to a TV audience and sponsors. And there's no doubt that people can turn out for big games in Apia, in Nukualofa, in Suva. And of course, in Lautoka. Come on, Lautoka! Go, Fiji, go! Go, Fiji, go! It's not Twickenham or Eden Park, but it does have atmosphere. And I think we've got to do the same in the South, right? We need a competition that's robust, resilient, um, but mostly entertaining. Mm. And, you know, for me, um, we have three of the most incredible um, partners mm. right on our doorstep, mm. being Fiji, Tonga, Samoa. Mm. And I think um, I can't speak to the time before mm. I was on the board, but what I can say is that I, I definitely think that it is um, becoming of us, uh, mm. both as New Zealand rugby, but but also the tier one other Sanzar partners mm. to actually really dig deep and support the emergence or re-emergence um, of our Pacific brothers and sisters. Because for me, when I look at it, uh, a stronger Pacific can only be better and kind of float the boats for all of us, right? Makes sense to me. You know, that idea of having a regular competition for those Pacific nations, that could be a game changer. And I'm not talking about the Pacific Nations Cup, which absolutely has its merits, but is limited in terms of audience reach and even in a sporting context. Fawasa Manea Salala Mapasua, the Samoan coach, was saying those teams are tired of beating each other up. And you can totally understand that, but this is where Super Rugby Pacific kind of shows the way. In 2023, there are 14 regular season games. Moana Pacifica are booked to play in Apia. Fiji will have home games in Fiji. And the potential for playoffs too. So as a result, the Ndrua and Moana Pacifica have full suites of sponsors, broadcasting deals. All the good stuff that comes with professional rugby. So if Tonga and Fiji and Samoa all get into regular competition against big teams... They increase their audience reach. They get broadcasting deals and there's money for players. Who know there are regular meaningful games coming down the track. The unions don't have to rely on world rugby for handouts. Or at least not to the same extent because they're bringing their own cash in. They're actually earning the kind of money they deserve for the entertainment they put on and they don't have to worry about asking nicely for gate share or whatever. Exactly. Well, potentially at least. Fantastic. Good job, everyone. When do we start? 
So, good news and bad news on that. Time out, time out, time out. For some time, World Rugby has had a competition in the pipeline. They're calling it a World League, which is a bit confusing, or a Nations Championship. That would have a kind of top 12 international teams playing each other. Oh, come on, man. So you see where that's going. Fiji and Samoa get in because they're in the top 12 rankings, but Tonga gets left out. Well, actually, Fiji gets in, along with Japan, but Tonga and Samoa are left out. Tonga and Samoa are both left out? Yeah, because Italy, despite being ranked outside the top 12 and despite every advantage, regular top-level competition, plenty of money, they only very occasionally knock off any of the big teams. But they do have three votes and are part of what Bailey Mackey calls the castle in the north, those Six Nations unions. And they vote together as a block at World Rugby. So Italy, kind of mysteriously, but not so mysteriously, qualify in the top 12. Yeah. Okay, that's cool, that's cool. Okay, John, but at least Donga and Samoa, if they perform well, they could make it into the top 12. Yeah, well, that isn't a given. Most neutral observers would say that there has to be a promotion relegation option. I mean, it just has to be open to other teams qualifying for there to be any sense of fairness. Because that would be the biggest competition in the world after the World Cup, right? So if you're on the inside, that's great. If not, you're effectively locked out. It will be just another example of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. But it is reportedly being held up because some teams in the top 12 don't want to let anyone else in. They want it closed off because they can see what a disaster it would be if they fell out of that top 12. And if that competition goes ahead, I mean, that's pretty good for Fiji, Vanaka. But Tonga and Samoa, they'll get even fewer opportunities to play against the top teams, which makes me think of a word that rhymes with Vinaka. But you said there was good news? Well, there is talk also of an Asia-Pacific tournament starting in 2024 with Japan, the US and Canada, Chile, Uruguay. Not exactly the big boys, but at least some regular international competition. No disrespect to those countries, but that is a pretty low bar. Is it a fair game? All right, let's go back to Rob Nickel, the head of the New Zealand Players Association. Remember, we spoke with him in the first episode about how World Rugby was effectively a cartel, with the biggest teams making sure their decisions worked for them. He's someone who knows the system inside and out, and he was saying that there's change in the air and that the Pacific teams can swing that to their advantage if they hang together. World Rugby and Rugby World Cup are currently looking at their models around the Rugby World Cup Limited and and how they commercialise the, that game in particular or that tournament and other tournaments that they run. And you know, Pacifica has to have a strong voice around what that looks like because they deserve a fair share in, in, in so many respects. And so that's, that's the kind of stuff that's got to happen. And I know this possibly is a little bit controversial, will probably spark some headlines, but um, frankly, it's the truth. And it's going to make some people uncomfortable, but, you know, that's, that's where it's got to go. So what Rob Nichols seems to be suggesting is that the Pacific teams form their own kind of power block. But even if Tonga, Fiji and Samoa do get together, given what we know about the way power works at World Rugby, will that be enough to force change? Do they have a lot to leverage? Actually, they do, probably more than they realise. Um, Pacific is such a preference within rugby now globally. You know, there is no Rugby World Cup without at least, I would have thought, 16 to 20 teams. You know, there is 
rugby wouldn't be the same game if it was just centred around the top eight to ten unions. That's not what anyone wants. Um, so I, I believe now, the difference now between now and 15 or 10 years ago, is people's minds have opened up and they are, they are prepared to look at a different strategy and a different vision. So that's the opportunity. And he says that it doesn't have to be an arm wrestle. Not even a bake-off. Rather than just expecting someone to suddenly change a model and deliver part of the cake, Pacifica come together, get organised, uh, tier two developing nations, and they're doing this right now, come together, get organised, you know, and, and put together a strategy where you work with the key stakeholders, you know, World Rugby and the other unions, and, and get meaningful competitions up and running that provide an aspirational pathway for you and, and demand that, because that's what the game needs globally. And, um, and it will make the top unions feel uncomfortable, but it needs to happen. Let's go. Good captaincy and good play here from Samoa to strike back straight away. Just a quick note here, you may have recognised the voice of Willie Lose, the late, great Dongan player and commentator. May you rest in peace, brother. Thanks for all the hard work. Ma lo aupito, Willie. Tok ahe nonga moi fi male a hotao ta mai Six minutes remaining, plenty of time for Manu Samoa. I mean, it's almost enough to make you feel optimistic. But what Rob Nichols saying, that's what Bailey Mackey was talking about. So why is he saying it will make the top unions feel uncomfortable? Because the top unions aren't necessarily the ones who've always played the best rugby. They have other priorities, other drivers because of the way their own systems work. Here's Bailey again. The financial clout that sits with the um, French and, and uh, English clubs, right, in terms of determining uh, what happens with their national uh, unions. Um, I think New Zealand is um, on-field performance has probably uh, historically given us a position of influence um, that maybe hasn't always been married up in, in regards to our influence in the boardroom. Mm. I mean, we're just one um, of the South. Um, and, you know, when you think about it, uh, World Rugby's domiciled in the North, um, mm. And all those things, I think, count against you, right? Because all the meetings happen in their time zone. And um, so, look, I, I think that's true, like, that we, we're probably not as um, influential as we'd like to be. Um, and hopefully, uh, in due course, uh, that'll change. Remember the castle in the north. It sounds like something out of Game of Thrones. It kind of is, because it's about power. Six nations. England, France, Ireland, Scotland, Italy, Wales. Three votes each, voting constantly as a block, holding enormous sway over the way world rugby is run. And behind them, the clubs and their rich owners. Here's Dan Leal, former captain of Samoa, head of Pacific Rugby Players Welfare. We met him in episode four. We always like to think that, uh, that world rugby are the ones pulling all the strings when it comes to the way that the the global game is developing. Um, the higher you get and the more time you spend uh, in the game, you realise that it's, it's actually not the case. The game's dictated by the Six Nations unions. And within that two or three most powerful unions, you know, right at the top of that, the, the English uh, rugby union and the French, um, you know, given the strength of their domestic competitions and just the money that player bases that they have, um, and just the resources that they have to, to draw on, you know. Um, this introduction of the World League and that discussion around that, you know, the global season, it's all it's all bending over 
towards accommodating their competitions. French clubs have a mammoth season, around 35 competition games a year between the top 14 and the European Cup. And they absolutely insist on keeping their season that long because they consider it essential for revenue. Then you add in five games across the Six Nations and the three November internationals and a compulsory eight-week rest period between seasons for player safety. That is not leaving many weekends for other competitions. About 10 years ago, I was talking to someone who sat on the executive committee at World Rugby about how things worked at the heart of the system. At the time, this was about my old team, racing, and how they'd held back the Fijians from the World Cup in 2011. You really couldn't let that go, could you? And he said, most of the problems at World Rugby came from the French, to the point where he said, half-jokingly, but only half, that they would wait until the head of French rugby went out for a cigarette break and try to get everything done then. Oh no, Messi Pavray, not the French being the bad guys. They're Darth Vader? I mean, I guess the smoking is a giveaway? I think, like the English clubs, they're doing their best to run things the way their people, their stakeholders or their communities want them to be run. Because this is politics, and they are answerable to those people. And Bernard Laporte, who was head of French rugby for the last six years, deputy head of world rugby since 2020. In 2022, he was named as the most powerful person in rugby by the British magazine Rugby World. He doesn't smoke, and he's got a lot of stuff done the way he wants it. Although, in December 2022, he was found guilty of corruption charges in Paris, alongside the guy whose name appears on the front of the All Blacks jersey. Mohit Altrat, also president of another of my old clubs, Montpellier. Sacre bleu! Or, as we say in New Zealand, what the what, bro? This is a whole other can of worms. So let's not get into it too deep. Basically, Mohit Altrad, The All Blacks jersey sponsor. With an estimated net worth somewhere north of 5 billion New Zealand dollars, was found guilty of bribing Bernard Laporte. The most powerful man in rugby. For preferential treatment both for the Montpellier club and Altrad's deal on the French jersey, which he also sponsors. Now, both men have appealed the verdicts, but Laporte has, quote, self-suspended, unquote, from his position at World Rugby and resigned as head of the French game. OK, I'll just process that. So what happens next? Well, this is still playing out. The appeals are unlikely to be heard for months, but it does go to the fact that one way or another, arranging deals amongst themselves that at the very least look terrible. That is something that happens among the most powerful people in the game. Now, it's not to say everyone's corrupt, far from it, but there is a particular culture of arrangements between friends. I knew it, John. I knew we'd pivot into a true crime podcast somehow. I think my biggest issue with when it comes to the governors is, is a lack, lack of transparency. You know, the fact that things are still done behind closed doors and it's still run a, that sort of, that old boys club. This is Dan Leo again, talking about how the host of the 2023 World Cup was chosen. World Rugby came out and said our preferred candidate is going to be, you know... Um, South Africa. You know, South Africa. And all this, all this you know, um, all these... You know, <laughs> conversations happen behind closed doors. It was a, a blind vote, so no one really knows who voted for who in these situations. It's not transparent. And it was all done behind closed doors. And it comes out that, you know, France. Yeah, 
France is the host for the World Cup in 2023, and the guy who ran the successful campaign for France to become the host nation, he's in the gun too. Fired from his job as head of the organising committee, found guilty on minor charges as part of the same case against Bernard Laporte and Mohit Altrad, but facing still more charges after his offices were raided. Is this the guy who got Jonah Lomu's kids to come over and say they supported the French bid in 2017 and the kids were like only seven or eight years old? That's the guy, Claude Etche. He somehow managed to turn around an independent recommendation to have South Africa run the World Cup for the first time since 1995 into a win for France, who last hosted in 2007. Going back to what we were talking about earlier about the power structures and the movement of money and uh, It doesn't take a rocket science to work out why those allegiances uh, were changed. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes. So wait, I know we've only been a true crime podcast for a couple of minutes, but are we saying the 2023 Rugby World Cup was bought by France? I don't think so. At least not in a kind of suitcases full of euros, personal enrichment way. But there was obviously lobbying, and we've seen that can involve horse trading and back-scratching at a national union level. It's like there are two world rugbies. On the one hand, there is the organisation itself, politically neutral and genuinely committed to growing the game. But then there's the intensely political side, where the national unions are jostling for position based on their own interests. Exactly. I think world rugby actually wants to do the right thing a lot of the time, but uh, they just don't have any power and they, they can appear quite toothless uh, in a lot of ways to, to enforce um, you know, um, what needs to be done for the world game. Dan Leo says change to the tiered voting system has to happen. So otherwise it's just vested interests. Um, it'll, it'll never change. As I said, I'd love to see one of the Pacific Island teams in a Rugby World Cup final in, in, in my lifetime, but for that to happen we need to shift this power. One of the kind of slogans that Pacific rugby players' welfare have is, if you're not sitting at the table, you're probably on the menu. But the trick is getting a seat at that table. And Dan wants to go straight to the rugby public in those powerful unions of England and France and appeal to them. You know, we've set ourselves a target of lobbying as uh, Pacific rugby players' welfare if we're ever going to make the difference. Because what we've got to understand is those their unions have got the biggest influence on, on over world rugby, but they're still accountable. You know, there is they're, they're accountable of those organisations to their to their members. You know, to the clubs, the individual clubs in in England um, are the ones that nominate their play, you know people to sit on their union, which again have that power. It's a bold strategy. They're appealing to rugby values from the people who prop up the game from the bottom, rather than the top, because. Although they call themselves Pacific Rugby Players Welfare, they're more of a lobby group, not part of the system itself. They don't officially represent a union. Hale Tipole, who we met in episode two, is the official player rep for the Pacific Islands, but he's really hands-on with the unions and the players themselves, working in that vital role inside the system. Yeah, Pacific Rugby Players Welfare have got a lot of names you would recognise on their 49-strong board, with current and former players from Tonga, Fiji, Samoa, as well as the USA, Australia, England and New Zealand. Guys like Adi Savea and former All Blacks Jerome Kaino and Nani Laumape. But even then, World Rugby doesn't really interact with them. 
because they don't see them as legitimate. So they're forced to work through raising awareness and changing public opinion. A lot of this job isn't just about looking at what's good for rugby, but, you know, it's, it's playing that political game. And I'm, I'm still learning, as I said earlier, how to, you know, to, to best represent our people in that because, you know, a lot of the time you come into it thinking, geez, you know, and it's, you, you get angry at the system. And um, I, I think it's, you can't let that come to the forefront. What Dan's talking about is part of the classic Pacific charm and the psalm being diplomatic and actually you don't want to alienate people and come across as you've got a chip on your shoulder and because it can't be about that um, it's got to be it's got to be about inclusive and, and and allowing people to join us on this journey to actually help us you know um get what's right for the pacific islands and and as you know probably tier two and three nations as well will never be enough in our, in our own right we we need the assistance of, of rugby public to get these outcomes So that's one route to a solution. Changing attitudes by bringing pressure to bear on the powerful. But you just know that kind of activism is going to take a long time. So let's get to Sir Bill Beaumont, chairman of World Rugby. We met him in the first episode and he's been on something of an unexpected Pacific journey himself. How long are you going to be in Samoa? Uh, Samoa, we're going to be uh, three days. Oh, that's, that's I understand they're time. going to make me a chief. You're getting a title? I think so, when I get there. So Bill Beaumont's Samoan chief. Yeah. It is embarrassing to me, uh, as, as the host of this show, that you are getting a title before I am. And uh, I, just, I just want to put that on the record so when my father listens to this... He would be very disappointed. He'd be very disappointed. <laughs> yeah, So, in October, Bill flew to Samoa and was given the chiefly title of To'o from the district of Lepa in eastern Upolu. Lepa, by the way, is also the home district of Peter Fatialofa, the legendary Samoan captain from the 1991 team. The To'o is uh, sort of a, a chiefly staff of authority. So it means that who has the title has the authority to speak first. What is of note is that he got the title from another famous person from Lepa, the former Prime Minister Susunga Tuliepa Lupesoliai Neoti Eono Salele Malelengooi. And if that seems like a lot of titles, he was Prime Minister for over 20 years. Now, Tuliepa, as he's more commonly known, has at least four more titles that I haven't mentioned. But most importantly to this show, he is Samoa's representative on the World Rugby Council. There's been some great investment going on and great infrastructure uh, that seems to be taking place over there. What do you think the pathway for countries like Samoa and Tonga is to, to catch up to their level? Well, uh, there is nothing to stop them. Let's pause. He's about to say more. I just want to acknowledge this sentence. I mean, technically, there is nothing to stop me flying to the moon. All I need is a space program, right? Maybe some infrastructure, but that's right. Between here and the moon, the skies are clear. But he does acknowledge money. 
Mm. You know, obviously finance is huge. And mm. I think people don't realise actually what a small population Tonga is, for instance. If you, if you said to somebody in, uh, in Europe, well, it's uh, an island with probably, what, 110,000 people on it. Mm. You know, it's sort of just sort of the talent that comes out of there. But even extraordinary talent needs a programme, needs a way of expressing itself. And look, it really sounds like Bill Beaumont gets it. Our title is World Rugby. Mm. It's not, you know, the top 10, top 12 countries. It's every country that's involved in the game. So it's incumbent on us to make certain that we do have a global game. Because if we don't have a global game, then... I will tell you in 20, in 20 years' time, I could almost name who all the quarterfinals of the World Cup are going to be. Right. Unless we do have a global game. And I think that is really, really important that we're not just into look, looking at our sort of nice, nice little clothes shop that we have, that we have to look at how we bring other countries in, how we make them better. Yeah, that whole thing with future World Cups, it's encouraging to hear him talk like that. But then he started talking about the next World Cup in France in 2023, and I'm not so sure he does get it. The thing about world rugby is that you're all on an equal status once you're in France. Everybody's the same. You know, you get the same facilities, same hotels, so same amount of players, same backup team. Everybody gets the same. Oh, to be fair, uh, if I can interrupt that, but the, the time before world, the World Cup is yeah, slightly well, different. Well, well, look at it from a I appreciate well, your point, though. Look at it now from sort of mm. what we've done, we, what we do, mm. we listen. Mm. And where things need improving, hopefully we make those changes so they do improve. So look at player welfare, for instance, whereby now that it used to be, due respect, mm. Tongans of this world mm. and the smaller country would have to play in a shorter turnaround period mm. than the larger countries. What we've done now to make sure that every single team, we put an extra week into the tournament, mm. so every single team gets the same rest period. And so that, you know, it gives them more chance. And that was direct collaboration with the uh, Professional Rugby Players Association. Okay, I think this is it right here. That point about finally changing the tournament so every team gets the same rest period, that's great. But it's a tacit admission from the governing body that for the previous nine, the tournament has been unfair. And it's not as if we only noticed recently. Because the system was built broken. And we know it's broken because people keep telling us how they're fixing it. Is the global touring calendar a way in which you can address that? Like getting, um, you know, Samoa's playing uh, Italy, I think, a, a little yeah, bit yeah, I think, later I on. I think they're playing Georgia as well. Because Georgia. In, Georgia, in Georgia last week, having right. exactly the same conversation with the Georgian Rugby Union, mm. and no doubt they're having with the feed. What, what these countries want, they want to play the, uh, the so-called top countries. Mm. And... It's only by playing them on a regular basis that they will get better and you get interest. So what would be great if we can look at our what we have done in World Rugby is that the countries that have qualified for the World Cup, they get better fixtures than those countries that don't. Again, this sounds great, but as yet we haven't really seen it happening. Samoa are not playing any teams ranked higher than them in the November window of 2022. Yep. And look, Georgia, totally understandable that they are pushing the same kind of points with World Rugby because they have similar frustrations with the structure of the game as it stands. Same as other countries like Canada or Namibia. 
But I just want to do a little callback to episode two. Here's Hale Tepole, the former back rower for Tonga's Ikalitahi, now head of Pacific Rugby Players. Don't compare us to America and mm. Canada and Namibia. And the, yeah, but you're all the same. Well, the namey Namibian players that are playing for the All Blacks, Australia and all that. Namey, mm. how much they have import in, in all the pro club rugby in, in the world. Yeah, we are emerging nations, but you don't ever compare us to to the Pacific Island to what the other emerging nations are going through. There's no comparison. Tonga doesn't have a, a tier one. Um, is it still the tiers? I, I well, no, we're trying, we've actually doing away with it. By the time mm. I finish in world rugby, I hopefully we've done away mm. with, with the tiers because, you know, you're only a tier one country because you play in a competition, mm. not because of actually what you are in the, uh, in the world, world rankings, which is quite important. So that sounds like a positive step, although it may only be a name change. And it's kind of weird because if you remember back to the interview with World Rugby's Oceania representative, Kathy Wong, in episode four, where she was talking about this new system with high-performing unions and performing unions and developing unions that had already replaced the tier system. Yeah, we spoke to her in August, but we spoke to Bill Beaumont in October. And what I remember particularly is that Samoa and Donga got demoted from group two to group three, which I guess is what can happen when you haven't got someone at the table. There's no Pacific governance really at, um, at the top level. Um, uh, there's, yeah, there are. Fiji, Fiji has and, the, and some are, are represented on the, on the World Rugby uh, Council. Any country has the opportunity if they qualify for World Cups and they uh, have a strong uh, women's programme, they have a strong development programme, they reach other, other criteria that doesn't stop any country from getting on the, on the World Rugby Council. There's nothing to stop them, but they have to meet certain criteria to, to, get, to get on that council. And there is nothing to stop uh, any, one of the, any, any individual from anywhere uh, on the globe to, to end up uh, on, on, on the, uh, as chairman. Look, again, it's technically correct that anyone from anywhere could end up as chairman, but there's a big gap between the theory and the reality. Here's a list of the people who actually have been voted to the chair of World Rugby since it's turned professional. Bill Beaumont. Representing England. Bernard Lapasse. France. Sid Miller. Ireland. Vernon Pugh. Uh, Wales. Is it any coincidence that the kings of World Rugby come from the castle in the north? But it is interesting, right? I mean... There are quite a few different ice cream flavours out there. But when you're choosing, say, vanilla, French vanilla, vanilla and Baileys, and vanilla bean with essence of leek, you have to say vanilla seems to be a flavour that works for you. Now, look, I'm a creamy kind of vanilla guy myself. Yes, you are, John. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with vanilla. It doesn't mean I'm anti-strawberry. But, James, are we just talking about ice cream here? Because when we first started this, I came to you saying, I thought this felt like structural racism. But some people we've spoken to say, yeah, that's the case. And others say, no. What do you think? This reminds me of my award-winning stand-up show, Let's Talk About the Gollywogs. 
Five stars, Edinburgh. We came to the conclusion in that show that if your grandma owned a doll, she wasn't racist. But the doll is racist. Racism is a big word. Like People drop into a defensive crouch as soon as they hear it, and they worry so much that they're personally under attack that they stop seeing the wider problem. And what I think we've seen in this series is a system that is working better for some people than it is for others. And I wonder, John, how are we going to address the gap between the haves and the have-nots? especially when we have people in charge who are going to quite naturally favor their own priorities, their own people, and reinforce their own power. I mean, is world rugby Eurocentric? Well, I think when the four different people who have run what is supposed to be a global organization for more than 25 years all come from Europe, that's got to be a clue. Vui calls it, but McFarlane gets it. They lock it in. His brother's not playing today, but Salala Lamb would like to. He'd love to. He gets two. Absolutely brilliant brace. Salala Lamb, and here come Manu Samoa. This is the great thing about rugby, right? The sense of possibility. Well, for the young boys and girls sitting at home watching this test match, If you dream big, you can achieve. And that's what Samoa had to do in the second half. Of empowerment. They were belted in the first at 17-3. They went to the shed. They asked some questions of each other. And they have come on and put on a performance that every Pacific Islander would be proud of. And for the first time in this game, Samoa take the lead with 10 to play. And look, in many ways, it's only a game. And if you have winners, you're going to have losers. But in the Pacific, we're really good at it. Our kids love it. And we want them to be able to compete on the kind of playing field where fairness is built into the system. Because surely that is the whole spirit of any game. What a game this is turning into. What a test match. It promised so much and it is delivering. You can't erase history and everything that comes with it. But you can see it for what it is and then work hard to make sure that when it comes to competing, everyone is on the same start line. Here's Bill Beaumont again. A lot has happened in the Pacific. You know, I think the investment in the, uh, in the Fijian Drua team mm. yeah, and the benefits that that will bring, the Mona Pacifica, mm. what, what's happening there. I think the government's changes that we've made in world rugby. You know, all these things are major contributions to help the region and help rugby really develop in the region because it is such an important area for us within the world game. Did the changes go as um, as fast as you want? Uh, I think what you have to do is sort of, uh, you've got to take everybody with you on, on the journey. And I think that's what we're doing. There might be a bit of frustration along the, on, along the way, but I think we've got to put the foundations in place. And what we're doing, we're putting the foundations in, in place. We're not just concentrating right at the top end. We're making certain that, you know, that it is sustainable and it can grow and keep on, on growing and working in collaboration with the countries that we will then sort of uh, have a truly global game. Fine sentiments, noble words. 
I actually don't doubt Bill's sincerity, and that's not just because he's now a chief of my people. But like I said before, it still feels like there's two world rugby's, the aspirational and the actual. If we're still at the building foundation stage 25 years into professional rugby, you gotta ask, is there really a collective political will there to bring about significant change? As Bill Beaumont says, Moana Pacifica, great example of progress, although remember what we learned in episode one, that it was really only COVID that brought about their inclusion in Super Rugby. But it's a good call. Let's go back to where we started this journey. My grandfather's house? Not quite that far. Moana Pacifica, based in South Auckland, who played their first season in Super Rugby Pacific in 2022, they're a huge step forward. I could really see that they had the right people on board. Uh, you look at the other Super Rugby franchises and there's not a lot of brown faces in high places. This is Taylor Johnson, Head of Marketing and Communications at Moana Pacifica. She's also played for Samoa's Manusena and is a rugby commentator for Sky. It's fair to say she knows her way around the rugby landscape in Aotearoa and the Pacific. I think... Um like the, the stunted growth of Pacific Island rugby isn't something that's going to be fixed overnight and there's no one fix to it. She also represented New Zealand at BMX. Not directly relevant, but very cool. Yeah, I think the motto from the start, from the likes of um, Sir Michael Jones is, um, you know, for Pacifica, by Pacifica, and that was really important in the back office roles as well. Like you look at, you know, appointing the head coach, Aaron Major, um, who's of you know, Tahitian, Samoan heritage as well. And this also extends to the back office, right through the club culture. So you've got, you know, the team manager and assistant manager, um, who's a woman as well, Gina, Gina um, Tusitala. And then you look at the commercial space, you know, you've got um, Ashley Weihongi, who's our commercial executive, and she's actually president of the Cook Islands Rugby Union. Um, you've got people like myself, who, you know, is a proud Pacific Islander as well. Um, our CEO is a Pacific Islander. So, um, look, we, we think it's really important to build not only the on-field talent, but the off-field talent, because, um, you know, rugby's not going anywhere and neither are Pacifica people in the space. So the more we can, I guess, infiltrate the mainstream, the better. I'm not going to lie. That does make me feel a bit more positive about moving forward. I think over the years, Pacific people have started to stand up for themselves more. You know, we, we always talk about being grateful, which we are, but we've kind of found our voices now. You know, you look at people like Adi Savia, who, you know, is probably a PR person's nightmare because he just says what he's thinking, but but good on him, you know, and, and he's standing up for himself. And it's a real Pacifica thing to just hold your tongue and to not question authority. It's it's a, it's a huge in the Pacific because you're, you're always taught to be really respectful. Taylor is one of the leaders of the next generation, and you get the feeling she's at ease navigating the corridors of power. But she's also acutely aware of the journey it's taken to get here. 1996, that's the year I was born. I'm 26 now, and we've finally got a Pacific team. You know, it's taken that long. You know, I've done so many things in my life in those 26 years, but it's taken this long to have a, a Pacifica Super Rugby team. So I think that says a lot in itself. And, and it's not anger or anything in the team. It's kind of like... 
it's 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 excitement that we're finally here. Um, now we have to deliver. We've been asking for this for so long. Now it's up to us to really prove why we deserve to be here. Game time. Let's go. From what I've seen and heard, talking to players and administrators over the last few months, I think there's a really good chance that Moana Pacifica will become a super rugby powerhouse. They're going to attract players to an environment where the players really will get the opportunity to be at their best. From a commercial point of view, people are really seeing the value and acknowledging culture. Um, you know, prior to being here, um, I was a consultant at one of the big four. Just some Palangi 101. Taylor means one of the four global accounting powerhouses, in her case, KPMG. And um, there was a huge appetite for making businesses, I guess, increasing their cultural capability. And by seeing a business operate in a cultural model, um, I think people are starting to realise actually you can mix them, the one and the same. Like, you can have a... I guess, what is it, like a constitution that's built on Fa'asa more values, which would work perfectly in any environment. There it is. That's the shift in mentality in a nutshell. Rather than keeping the Pacific at a safe distance, bring us in and let us show you how we reinforce the ties that bind us to each other. These unbreakable bonds between people based on how we keep the islands in our mind. We are explorers reading every sign, we tell the stories of our elders in a never-ending chain. James, I think those are the lyrics to a song from Moana. John, I'm saying we know the way. Instead of making us feel lucky to be participating in world rugby, the powers that be should feel lucky to have the Pacific cultures involved. As Dwayne The Rock Johnson would say, you're welcome. And thank you! Hey, Jay. Have another advantage. Matawalu. Now they'll come back. Another penalty. Tui Loma's offside. Boy, why not go for the draw? Nah, this is the Pacific Islands. What are you talking about? See, it's not just that Pacifica are fundamental to world rugby, even if they're underfunded. It's that without those teams, like Tonga and Fiji and Samoa, you miss out on moments like this. Well, they try and contest here, Manu Samoa. Oh, will the mistake come from Fiji? Crowd on their feet. Over the back it goes. Manu Samoa have it. Sends it back. They bang it into touch. Manu Samoa. Champions of the Pacific once more. There's nothing like taking on the odds and beating them. These moments are why we play. Here's James talking to Manu Samoa coach, Vauvasamanaya Selala Mapasua. Uh, coach, you told us you can't lose. You can't afford to lose. Oh. You were down pretty bad at halftime, but you didn't lose. Talk to us about that. Um, you've got to believe, you know, and, and my job as the coaches to, to empower these boys to believe in themselves. Based, we based everything on... On, on three pillars, which which we which we live by, and that's our, our family, our faith, and our culture. And um, today was about uh, showing showing and, and celebrating our not just our Samoan culture, but our culture within Mansa Samoa. 
we saw the fight at, you know, for the boys to, to, to stay in the fight for the full, full 80 minutes is um, a massive credit to them. You don't just win the tournament, you're undefeated winning the tournament. What does that say to World Rugby? Um, <laughs> uh, that's a probably good question for them <laughs> to answer. We'll just focus on us and keep focusing on, on, on what we're doing. Um, but no, I hope uh, the right people are taking notice. Written and produced by James Norkise, Tale Anderson and John Daniel for Bird of Paradise Productions, Radio New Zealand and Pacific Media Network. Language Programme Director, Matt Tufunga. Executive Producers for RNZ, Justin Gregory, Katie Gossett and Tim Watkin. Sound Engineers, Rangi Poek, Alex Harmer and Jeremy Ansel for RNZ, Harrison Edwards at PMN. Music and Sound Design, Anonymous, Faumu Matthew Salapo. Visuals, Manatoa Productions, Anonymous, and Krista Barnaby for RNZ. Additional reporting by Lethe Mavono. Additional sound recorded by Rudy Bartley at WT Media in Samoa. Special thanks to Don Mann, Louis Villasoni, Langi Poiva, Cheryl Jackson, Jody Hoane, Josie Campbell, Elijah Fafio, and Ingangaro Fakafi. Thanks to Sky Sport, TVNZ, TV3, and Discovery for game audio from TV broadcasts. RNZ Commissioning, Jody Hwane, Tim Burnell. RNZ Acting Head of Content, Veronica Schmidt. RNZ Interim Chief Content Officer, Megan Whelan. Game time, let's go! I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend <laughs> that I don't right Hold now. it in. Hold and our current faves. And Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.